Thanks, Tyler. Uh, okay, so this is the part of the service now where I'm going to preach the sermon. And I, I just want to let you know what we are doing and why we do this each week. Uh, that, that what's going to happen is I'm going to open up uh, the Bible. We're going to have a reader who comes up and is going to read Scripture. And then after we read that passage of Scripture, I'm going to talk about uh, what it means and why it matters for our lives. And the reason that we do that is that we believe that uh, what is in the Bible is God's word. That that our God has a desire to speak to us, uh, to shape our lives, to love us and care for us through the words that are, that are in Scripture. And that these words were written by everyday people, people who have backgrounds and stories and styles, personalities, and that all of that, God used all of that when he wrote this text for us because he wants to speak to us. And so we open it up, we read out of it and preach out of it, communicate out of it, because we believe that is in fact God's way of communicating with us. And what we'll usually do uh, when we are working through a scripture is we'll work through one book kind of over the course of several months because we believe that the books that are in scripture in a lot of ways are like other books, which means they have themes and ideas that the author is trying to communicate to us over a series of different stories. And that's true for the book of Acts that we're in right now. We've been talking about Acts all this fall and we've been hitting on uh, kind of one major theme that I asked about last week, so I'm going to ask again, okay? Uh, do you guys, w- what is the theme that we've been hitting on throughout the book of Acts? Mission. mission. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> about being on mission with Jesus, right? And the theme verse that we've been talking about is Acts 1.8, right at the beginning of the book. Luke sets us up. The author of the book sets us up, and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. That what Luke is saying is that God has a mission in the world. That God is always at work moving toward saving people, bringing people to himself. That is what our God is about. And that he has invited us into that mission with him. He's empowered us for that mission by giving us the Holy Spirit. And that that mission is, is, is for us, it goes out into the entire world. And this morning, the text that we're in is a huge, like a quantum leap forward in that mission. So I'm going to ask Julie to come up. Julie is going to be our scripture reader this morning. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can flip to Acts 11. Be in Acts 11. It will also be up here on the screen if you want to follow along. Uh, And we're going to talk about this massive kind of movement in the history of the faith that happened in this chapter. Okay, this is Acts 11, 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were, with, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. 
These six brothers also accompanied me, and, were in, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thanks, Julie. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we're, we're thankful that you uh, desire to speak to us this morning, and we trust that that's what you're going to do. So, Lord, would you open our hearts uh, to receive that? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to start, I, I want to give us just a little bit of context for the story that we're landing in because I think it can, it can come across as a little bit confusing. And one of the things that you have to know as we're, as we're digging into this story is some of the background between Jews and Gentiles, right? So the, the, way, uh, the, the way that this had kind of, there was this yawning chasm that over the centuries had developed between the people that God had called to himself, the Jewish people, and Gentiles who are essentially everyone else in the world. Right? And that was not God's original intention, but it's, it's, it's kind of what happened. And so by the time we get to this story, there is this, there's this yawning chasm between Jews and Gentiles to the point where people who were Jewish wore it as a badge of honor when they could avoid Gentile people at all costs. So the more that you could avoid people who were not Jewish, the better Jew you were. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the, the, the state of play that we land in when we're getting into this story. But you've got to think, now this is a little bit uh, problematic, isn't it, for a church that's been called on mission? Because the church at this point is primarily made up of people who are Jewish, that they've come to know and trust Jesus, yes, but their primary framework is still through, uh, through the lens of Judaism that they've been handed down. Jesus is a, is a piece of that story, right? But they're still kind of in that same framework, that same framework that teaches them to avoid people who aren't Jewish. So how is the gospel supposed to go to the ends of the earth when everyone who's a part of the church is busy trying to avoid people who aren't Jewish? It's a problem. And what happens in this passage is God blows the doors, uh, God blows the doors off of the church. He's shaking the church and he's saying, no, you're missing the point. This is in fact for everyone. And it starts here in, in a small kind of trickle with this man Cornelius and his family. But what happens after this point in Acts is that this little stream becomes this raging flood as the gospel goes out into the entire world. And as people who aren't Jewish suddenly start to embrace the gospel. This is a real turning point in the history of the church. And you would think, right, so, so Peter, so chapter 10 in Acts kind of gives the whole drawn out story of this. Uh, there's the perspective from Cornelius because he's received this vision from God saying, hey, go and call for Peter, bring him to you and he's gonna bring a message to you that's gonna change your life. It's gonna save you. 
So Cornelius goes and sends for Peter. At the same time, Peter is having this vision of animals and sheets, and we'll get into that. It's very confusing for Peter, right? So he has this vision, and then the Holy Spirit prompts him and says, hey, there are men coming to get you. Go down and meet with them, and then go with them. So God is setting this whole thing up. And what happens here, so Peter has gone and he's met with Cornelius and his family. He shared with them the gospel. They receive it with joy. And now Peter is coming back home to Jerusalem. And you would think, our expectation would be, that he would be greeted by one of those like soccer, you know, like AYSO soccer uh, uh, tunnels, right? People would be clapping, cheering. This is what we wanted. This is what we were hoping for, right? The gospel is going out. That is not how he's received, though. He gets back kind of into his community, and people are calling him on the carpet. Hey, you were going and eating with those people. What are you doing? It's a little bit disorienting, right? But understanding this chasm that had existed between Jews and Gentiles kind of helps us understand where they're coming from. And what it tells us is that as the gospel moved forward, what it provoked was resistance. And we've talked about that, how as the gospel goes out, it meets resistance in the world out there. But what this passage shows us is that it also meets resistance in our own hearts. Because what was true uh, for the people in the story, for Peter, his friends who were a part of this church, is also true for us, is that there are ways that we are resistant to the gospel in our own lives and hearts. And so this passage, it it speaks not only to this historical situation and the way the church expanded, but it speaks to us, to the places in our own hearts that we can be hard toward the work of God. That's what we hope that God's gonna be breaking down for us some this morning. And what God is confronting here in, in his church and what he's confronting in us this morning is, is this thing that we call legalism. And what's true about the people in the story, what's true about us, is that deep down in our hearts, all of us, I don't care who you are, all of us are recovering legalists. It's true. And we gotta, we gotta take a moment, though, to talk about what legalism is, because if we, if we misdefine legalism, we'll end up trying to cure it with something that can make the situation worse. Like, you know, like in medieval days when they would stick leeches on you or cut your arm and bleed you to try to make you feel better? They misunderstood the problem, the original, the original problem, and so they, they had a, a bad solution to that problem, which makes the whole situation worse. That's what often happens when we're dealing with legalism because the way that we tend to think about legalism is that legalism is someone who takes the rules just a little bit too seriously, you know, kind of a buzzkill. And so our advice to legalistic people is like, just loosen up, you know, like curse just a little bit, you know, or like, go watch, just, just go watch a rated R movie or, or cheat on your taxes, but not too much, right? Like that's the cure to legalism. It's just kind of like push the boundaries, don't care so much, loosen up. What that ends up doing when that's the way that we think about legalism and that's the cure that we prescribe, first of all, it doesn't cure us from the legalism that's deep inside of us. Instead, it adds this extra component of what we would call license which is in some places in my life, okay, I gotta follow the rules, I'm doing the right thing, but sometimes I kinda gotta bust out of that and like not follow the rules. And so we swing back and forth between the two and what it creates in our lives is uh, hypocrisy. Because legalism is not someone who takes the rules too seriously. Legalism is when we believe that us keeping the rules means that we have earned something from other people or from God. I'm gonna say that again because that's very important, okay? Legalism is not 
uh, someone who takes the rules too seriously. Legalism is when we come to believe that we have earned something from God, that we deserve something from God, that God loves us because of what we have done for him. And even if you don't believe in God, there are ways that this applies in our lives. Right? The legalism that can work itself out is that I believe that I'm loved from other people because of what I do for them. That's its own form of legalism. And that kind of living, it warps our lives and our relationships. That's true, and you see that in spades in any sports movie you've ever watched, including Hot Rod, okay? Because what happens in all of those movies is there is always somebody who is playing the game because they want to get love usually from their dad. Isn't that true? It's true in Hot Rod, right? And so a person is spending all of this effort to prove something to their father who they are trying to earn love from, and what is always true about all of those relationships is they're dysfunctional. And even when the athlete finally does the thing, wins the game, proves the point, uh, they still don't get what they most earnestly desire, which is a love that's freely given. Legalism distorts our, our, our lives, our hearts, our relationships. And that's, that's what the people in this story are living out of, is this legalistic heart. It says, now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Woo-hoo, right, that's what we're expecting. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Do you hear the legalism there? Because what's been true about these people for a long time, okay, now we're gonna get into kind of a fine distinction here about God's law. I promise you it will pay off. So just stick with me. There are three different kinds of, of, um, of law in the Old Testament. There is ceremonial law, that's right. And this is uh, don't eat pork or shellfish or animals that like part the, whatever it is. You know, all of those like dietary laws, right? Or this is how you clean your house from mold. Or this is the kind of sacrifice that you need to offer at the temple depending on the sin that you've committed. So this is the ceremonial law. This is kind of all throughout the Old Testament. Then there's also a civil law. And this is the law that was for Israel as a nation. Okay, your country, which means you have to have laws. So God says, I'm gonna give you some of those laws. So there's like punishment for crimes. Like if you steal somebody's cow, you gotta give them two cows back unless the cow dies, in which case you gotta give them four cows. That's civil law, okay? If you've ever done a Bible reading plan in a year, this is the place where we start to get tripped up, right? When you're in Leviticus, you're like, what the heck is going on? I, I just, I pass. <laughs> Ceremonial, civil. And then you have the moral law. The moral law is uh, 10 commandments. So honor God, honor your parents, don't steal. This is the moral law. It's based in God's character. It tells him, tells us who he is, how he's created the world, and what it looks like for us as people to live in that world. Okay, so when we're talking about issues of circumcision, which of these do you think we're playing in? We're in the ceremonial law, okay? So what the people in this passage have done is they have taken the ceremonial law and it has become like the thing for them. Why is that, do you think? Out of the different laws you could choose, why the ceremonial law? Well, and really, the nation of Israel at this point in its history is not really a nation anymore, so this is kind of void. So between the ceremonial and the moral law, why the ceremonial law? 
Yes, it's external, right? It's really easy to see. It's super measurable. If you're gonna create a smart goal in your life, use the ceremonial law. It's specific, don't eat shellfish. It's measurable, did I eat shellfish today? No, right? It's attainable, don't do it, there are other things you can eat. It's realistic, because I can eat something else, and it's time-bound. Don't do it today, don't do it tomorrow, don't do it ever, right? Ceremonial law, it's much easier to keep. And it's a way of saying to other people, no, you, you're different than us, you're other than us, and I can be confident in my own righteousness and confident that you're not righteous. Win-win. In fact, they loved the ceremonial law so much that they added to it. Because God never told his people, don't eat with Gentiles. The whole purpose of the ceremonial law was to help them create this counterculture that people would see and be attracted to. But instead, they're using it to repel people. It's the opposite idea of what it's supposed to do. And to make themselves feel better, they, better, they continue to add uh, more, m- more measurables that they can keep beyond what God had prescribed. It's a way of increasing confidence in our own righteousness. You're like, well, it's easy to look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. God would never want that. Of course it's okay for me to eat shellfish, right? And to associate with people who are different than me. How terrible, how exclusive, how judgmental. And yet... We, d- we live with this kind of legalistic heart. Friends, we do it all the time. We see it all throughout our world. It's most often associated with a kind of traditional morality or moralism, like kind of a conservative morality about, about sexual lives, about kind of all, all, those, all those things that, um, that, yeah, that you think of as part of like a traditional set of values. And it's easy in those situations for us to step back and push away and say, well, there's a lot of legalism there, right? But what we don't realize is that is, that's also true in the way people react to their conservative upbringing or their traditional upbringing. When you think about Nashville, uh, that's like part of the reason that some of you are here is that sometimes a, a very common story, right, is I like left my small kind of sheltered, traditional legalistic town to like come to the big city and find something different. And then what we find, though, even when we come here, is now this place has its own set of rules and laws for us to keep. There's this author, Anne Applebaum, who wrote an article in The Atlantic last year that was kind of right about this very topic. It was called The New Puritans. And here's, here's what she says. She says, right here in America, right now, it's possible to meet people who have lost everything, jobs, money, friends, colleagues, after violating no laws and sometimes no workplace rules either. Instead, they have broken, or are accused of having broken, social codes having to do with race, sex, personal behavior, or even acceptable humor, which may not have existed five years ago or maybe five months ago. Some have made egregious errors of judgment. Some have done nothing at all. It's not always easy to tell. And then she goes on to describe what it's like when you've broken one of these codes. She says, here's the first thing that happens once you've been accused of breaking a social code when you find yourself at the center of a social media storm because of something you said or purportedly said, the phone stops ringing. People stop talking to you. You become toxic. I 
have in my department, she's quoting now from someone she interviewed, I have in my department dozens of colleagues. I think I have spoken to zero of them in the past year, one academic told me. One of my colleagues I had lunch with with at least, at least once a week for more than a decade, he just refused to speak to me anymore without asking questions. And I use that simply to illustrate the point that uh, we can take away the ceremonial law Right? We can take away biblical ideas of law, but we as a people are always going to replace it with something. We are always looking for a set of laws, a set of norms, a set of rules, a set of principles that we can use to measure our lives and to measure then ourselves against other people. We're always looking for material to aid us in our search for a comparative righteousness. Right? Like when you ask someone, do you think, if someone's giving them your giving a self-evaluation of whether or not they are a good person. Have you ever met anyone who says, you know what, I think I'm a pretty bad person, if I'm being honest? No, no one ever says that. Everyone says, oh, you know, I'm pretty good. Yeah, like I'm not a legalist. I fudge the rules every now and again, but like I'm pretty good. Right? That what, what that tells us about people is that we are all searching for rules that we can use to govern our lives that can allow us to feel better about ourselves and judge ourselves, measure ourselves against other people. We did it during COVID, didn't we? that we received all kinds of rules or regulations about how we were supposed to live with COVID, and then each of us made our own decisions about how we were gonna live within those rules. And everybody who uh, had a set of rules that we thought were more extreme than ours, we thought they were being extreme. And everyone who had rules that were less extreme than ours, we thought, well, they're being unsafe. I know what I'm doing, and I'm gonna judge all of you by the standards I've created for myself. That's the, that's the way that legalism works, and, and it, it's in all of us. And that kind of living, it distorts relationships. Right? Our relationship to the world around us, to the people that we love in our lives. And that's why Peter uh, and, the, and the people that we meet in this passage, that they resist what God is doing here is because we can become so attached to those rules and laws and ways of thinking about ourselves that make us believe that we are righteous in our own eyes, we can become so attached to those that we resist any effort to pry them away. Think about how many times God has to tell Peter that he is changing things. A sheet comes down from heaven and there's mixed clean and unclean animals, right? Ceremonial law. And God says, hey, you can eat any of these. And Peter says to the Lord, no, Lord. Guys, he's done, he does it three times. Like, hey, Peter, there are other things you've done three times when you've told the Lord no. It's usually not good, right? And God has to continue to prompt him. Hey, now go downstairs. There are gonna be some people there and I want you to go with them. And then he gets there and he shows up and he says, so what do y'all wanna talk about? He's resisting. Every step of the way, he's resisting. And Jesus is pulling him, pulling him, pulling him. No, I'm doing a new thing. I'm stripping away all of these ways that you... Uh, that you have made to measure your own righteousness and I'm doing a new thing, Peter. Because what Jesus did when he came, uh, Jesus did not just say, ah, forget about the law, stupid. Don't care so much. What Jesus did is he fulfilled the law, even the ceremonial law. And what that means, first of all, is that he kept it, right? But he did more than keep the law. Like the whole point of the ceremonial law, it's all about things that are clean and unclean. It's about creating, like we said, this kind of counterculture that shows people what it can look like when a people have devoted themselves to God. Uh, 
all about this clean and unclean. What Jesus does that is so different than everyone else is that he approaches people who are ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean, and when he touches them, he does not become unclean, but they become clean. Like there were, there were these lepers, people who had this debilitating, disfiguring, deadly skin disease. And with the ceremonial law, they were kept in a different part of the city. It was a kind of protection for the people. It was also a way of communicating this idea of cleanliness. And what Jesus does, he breaks every, uh, every taboo. He, he touches these lepers. But rather than Jesus becoming unclean, what happens is they become healed of their disease that Jesus is showing us was at the heart of the law, which is God's desire to bring cleanliness, to bring healing into our world. So the ceremonial law, it's been fulfilled. And what that means is now it can be done away with. So God is freeing his people to walk out of legalism into something different. It's like right now people are bringing us uh, meals on our meal train because we have a new baby and so we need a lot of help, right? And a lot of times people will bring those meals in um, like foil pans. Okay, once we've eaten the meal, we throw away the foil pan. And I like crumple it up so it'll fit in our trash can, you know? That's what's happened with the ceremonial law. Jesus is saying it's done, it's, it's, fulf- it's fulfilled its purpose. And now it can be done away with, it can be cast aside. And this changes the way then that the people of God think about their relationships with the world around them. Because, oh, look at this. This is my favorite. Okay. Wow. So before, in a kind of with a heart of legalism, the way that the Jewish people approached the law was like this. It's like, okay, on this side, we have God. Can you see this in the back? Do we need to draw it bigger? Okay. So we have God on this side. I drew this too short. Okay. And then on this side... We have Gentiles. And kind of the perspective of legalism was to say, oh, we're over here with God, and so if you're gonna get to be with God, you gotta first come and be like us, and then you can come and be with God. That's a heart of legalism. We all do that in our own ways, right? That's what we've been talking about. Uh, This is a different story now. What Jesus is saying is, hey, what is true about us before the moral law is that we are all desperately in need of someone to come and make us clean. What's true is that we are all, all people are over here, separate from God. That when we look at God's moral law, the commandments that he's given us to not kill, steal, covet, lie, all of those things, what's true about us is that when we encounter God's standards for holiness, that we all realize we are in desperate need of a savior and there is no distinction between us in our need. There is no person who is more needy for the gospel than someone else. It's true about all of us that there is a separation that exists between us and God And what Peter is realizing in this passage and what he calls the church into realizing is that what what allows us to be back with God is the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us on the cross. So you can see it better in the back, okay? That what Jesus has done for us is he has kept the law. And scripture says it like this, God made him who had no sin, this is Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly, right? Him who had no sin, to be sin for us, 
to die on the cross to take our sin on himself so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be back in relationship with God. What God is doing here is stripping away in the story all of those external laws. He's exposing that for all people, that all people are equal in their need for a savior. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's love. And yet what is true is that he has come because of his great love for us to offer himself freely, to offer his love as a gift. But it's not something that we can earn, that we can keep, that we can uh, have our own ways of making God happy. That's not the point. That he has come to give us what we could not earn for ourselves. And when that hits the church, in this story, this is what they say. Well, first, when they hear these things, they fall silent. And then they glorify God, saying, then to, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That there is life for us now in the gospel. Right? As we confess our, our total and utter need for a Savior, that then we can embrace the Savior that God has provided for us. And that's a repentance then that leads to life, a life that is free from the burden of all of those external laws that we create for ourselves and for other people, that we are free from having to measure ourselves against other people in order to believe that we are worthy of being loved because you already are. And that changes in the way that we engage with the world around us. I'm... It was making me think of uh, this book that I'm rereading called All the Light We Cannot See, which came out like, it's, it's, a, it's a few years ago, okay? But in this story, uh, it's, it's one of the main characters is this little girl who is growing up in uh, kind of in the, the time span around World War II, before, during, and after. This little girl from France. And in this story, she has a father who is utterly devoted to her. She's his only child. He's a single parent. And he takes his daughter with him everywhere. Takes her with him to work every day. They spend all this time together. And uh, this little girl is blind. And so the father spends all this time preparing these wooden models for his daughter of the city of Paris. Like scale models that have trees and benches and little grates so that she can learn uh, the city that she lives in so that she can walk then with confidence in the, in the world around her. And as they have to flee Paris and they're out uh, kind of in the fields of France trying to figure it out, he is doting on his daughter. And they finally reach this new city and what he does there is he spends hours again creating these models as a way to give her confidence to engage in the world that she's living in. This is a little girl who has done nothing to earn her father's love but has been given everything from her father, a father who is devoted to her. And what unfolds throughout the story is this little girl grows up and becomes a woman and she engages the world with such confidence, such bravery, such courage. Because she's able to enter the world as someone who knows how deeply she's loved. And the promise that her father makes her in that story is, I will never leave you. He says that to her. 
That's what we desperately long to hear from the people who love us unconditionally. And yet we know that they're incapable of keeping that promise. It is only our Heavenly Father who can make that promise to us, who can say, behold, I am with you always. My love is with you always. I am always pouring my love into your life, not because of what you've done, not because of somehow you've earned it, but because it's been given to you freely. What that does then is it changes the way we go out and enter our world. Not as a people who are looking for love or proving that we're worthy of love, but as a people who know that we are loved. And what that does I could spend the next 30 minutes telling you about what that does, but that would, I will not do that to you this morning, okay? We'll just talk about a few of the things that this passage shows us about how that changes our lives. One of the things that it does is it tears down every barrier that we would erect that makes us different than other people. That's what melts away in this passage. The ethnic divisions that were keeping these people apart, they don't matter anymore. Yeah, there are still very real differences between people who grew up in Judaism and people who did not, but what God is saying is that there is something that you have in common that is more than all of those things, which is your need for a savior and your savior who has come for you. So those other barriers, uh, they, they get a lot smaller. And whether those are ethnic barriers or, uh, or social barriers, right, issues of class or education or privilege, that what God is saying is that all of those things pale in comparison to the union that we have with other people and the fact that we all are equally in need of a savior. And we're free then to live on mission and play offense. I think that we have, a, you know, we have a soccer team now, so I think I can use a soccer illustration for you, okay? Uh, think about the end of a soccer game when one team is clearly ahead. They just play, they just kick that ball around the rest of the time, right? They're not trying to score another goal. They're not trying to do anything crazy. The whole goal is to ju- just play defense. Just keep it away, just keep passing it around. The other team are getting so anxious trying to get that ball back and they're just, they're just bouncing it around the field. We can live like that when we are living with hearts that are consumed by legalism. That our following of Jesus, we can look like this church, the following of Jesus becomes all about uh, how are we keeping other people out? How are we making sure that our lives don't change? Because this was a big change for these people. Of course it was upsetting to them. And we can live our Christian lives like we're trying to manage all of the opportunities for change and keep them out, keep them away. No, that's a defensive way of living. Jesus is calling us here into something totally different. The living on offense. And rather than being afraid of all the things that we could say that would be wrong or might not hit right or what if someone thinks this or what about that we are free to go out and love the people around us. Even in and especially over those barriers that we so often feel that would keep us apart. That we're free to invite people into intimate relationship. You realize that what is that people who are different than us into intimate relationship what is true in this story, kind of at, at, the, at the core of it, one of the big issues that they keep pounding against is this issue of who can you have dinner with? You hear that? They're saying, well, you wouldn't eat with uncircumcised people. Why do we care so much about who we eat with? It's because that place of sharing a table with someone is a place of great intimacy, a place of great vulnerability. That's like metaphorically true. That's also just like true, Right? that eating with someone, sharing a meal with them is a really vulnerable thing because it brings out, there's an opportunity for so much conversation and kind of a, a authentic connection. 
It's why uh, the work that God has called us to in the Napier community as a church is called Napier Kitchen Table. That sharing meals is at the heart of what people are doing there. It's a place of connection. Once God has torn down those barriers of legalism and invited us into relationship, and as you think about what it looks like to leave here and be a people on mission, friends, that's part of what it looks like is that we would be inviting people in our lives into deep, authentic, connecting relationships, even people who are different than us or who think differently about us, even about God. We have the freedom now to go and pursue those things in love and to receive that kind of relational connection from other people. Like earlier this week, uh, we just had one of those nights that was, you know, if you were a parent, you know the time between nap time and bedtime, it can get rough sometimes, okay? <laughs> That's when we need the most help at my house. And just getting out the door to like go on a walk on our street was this m- massive scream fest, but we did it. And we're walking down the street, and I'm like, all I know is we're getting to the end of the street. And we're walking down the street, and one of my neighbors says, hey, can you just wanna come play in our yard? I was like, no, I gotta get to the end of the street. <laughs> I'm like, okay, wait, <laughs> that's not the point of this. Yes, <laughs> they were playing in the front yard. And she asked, uh, can I feed your kids? Like, um, my instinct is, no, I'm a grown person. I know how to feed my kids. I promise I can do it. I promise I can do it. Uh, yeah. Thanks. The part of what this calls us to is not, not only being the people who are inviting people into authentic relationship with us, but being willing to say yes to people who are looking for relationship. Saying yes as people who need relationship, right? It's not only about all the things we're doing for other people, it's about the fact that God chooses to meet those needs in our lives through relationship too, through people who may be very different than us. Yes, praise God. That's the kind of bold, uh, I was gonna say often, not offensive living, offensive living, you know what I'm saying? Offense-oriented living that God is calling us to as he breaks down those barriers of legalism in our hearts. Okay, so I'm gonna pray for us. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna worship. And the songs that we're gonna sing uh, are songs that show us and remind us of our need for Jesus, how he meets us in that need and then how we go out because of that. We're getting a chance to worship into Uh, what God has been speaking to us about through his word. This would encourage you, as we are worshiping, that you would uh, allow the words of these songs to engage your heart. And that you'd be willing to ask the Lord, uh, where, where do I need to hear this most for myself? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we're so thankful that you've come and you've fulfilled the law on our behalf. Lord, we confess that we so often are people who are driven by legalism, by our need to prove how right we are to other people. Jesus, would you rescue, you have rescued us from that. Would you continue to rescue us from that, to change and melt our hearts, that they would be hearts that are soft to your grace, and because of that would be hearts that are soft to other people. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.